What's up guys, Phil here, and I'm gonna be riding solo this podcast. Kalen is up in the mountains chasing bears for spring bear season. And I told him that I wanted to do a debrief of uh, our recent intro to precision rifle that we had uh, up at my home range in Hart Mountain, Cody, Wyoming. Uh, I'm on the way actually to a precision rifle match up in Boise, it's a Parma Precision Rumble. So if I see you guys this weekend, I'm looking forward to uh, shooting with you. But I believe this podcast will probably release after the match. So hopefully uh, we all do well. Um, anyways, uh, yeah, I just wanted to, you know, talk about some of the things that I saw as uh, we went throughout the course um, for our intro intro class. Uh, a few things that I, I feel like uh, you guys that are listening in can, can take away, um, whether you're new to long range or, again, experienced, uh, long range shooter um so you know if, if this is your first time listening to podcast welcome i definitely appreciate you having uh, been here and this is a podcast that we you know talk about long range stuff and regardless of your application to long range shooting professional military law enforcement sniper hunting competitive shooting or just an enthusiast um you know we we try to talk about all that uh, that encompasses that of a rifleman and you know um, you know, share our truths of our journey of what we find uh, behind a gun. So, uh, so intro to uh, precision rifle and Cody started off with some crappy weather. Uh, thankfully, we were able to do most of the classes for the first half of day one. Uh, actually, out of, out of my garage, my uh, I set up my garage, um, and uh, you know, we were able to create it and turn it into a classroom environment, which was pretty cool. And we only had uh, eight students, and, and then I had um, Ryan D'Agostino and uh, Clayton Creel come and help, uh, uh, pretty much assistant instruct for me. Uh, Ryan D'Agostino is with Achilles Hills Tactical. Um, for those that went to Ohio Range Day, uh, we talked together there for uh, a small little tidbit, and uh, he's also. Uh, very same similar background that I am um, minus the fact that uh, he did not graduate school but his proficiency uh, behind a precision rifle I mean it honestly that doesn't really mean shit to me so anyways um, and then Clayton Creel if you guys know Clayton uh, he's been on our podcast he was the one that uh, took me on my elk hunt and he is a sheriff deputy out in Cody and just eager to not only learn the uh, sniping side of uh, the house, because he's a very competent shooter, but I, I think with his role in the department of trying to stand up uh, a uh, team and him being the sniper, he wants to you know, look at or become a more uh, confident instructor, platform instructor, so he kind of came through the course looking through that lens as well as assisting me with uh, the students. But we had uh, eight students overall all together and some uh, LE, some hunters nearby and um, aspiring competitive shooters. So again, mix of everything uh, that we had. So day one uh, is our typical, you know, intro to long range for those that have been to intro to long range, which is essentially uh, introductions we talk about circle of components and then uh, we do a class on fundamentals marksmanship and then we you know with fundamentals marksmanship we talk about rifle setup and we that's usually the first bulk of the morning and then the afternoon is shooting at 100 yards until you hate your life okay it's not that crazy but you shoot a lot you shoot anywhere from 60 to 80 rounds on 100 yards to really kind of work out the kinks and make sure that you're able to drive the capability of that rifle system that you brought to course. And so that also helps us identify as instructors if, you know, if there's any guns that are having any issues, uh, maybe, you know, uh, swap scopes and, and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, it also gives the students, uh, even uh, some of our students that have done all of our online um, courses, uh, the ability for us to see them and to correct them because you know all day though they might see it 
and think that they're applying it to the best of their ability based off how they interpret the information that they see online, you know, there's no better reaffirmation of an instructor actually watching over you and be like, hey, you know, uh, this looks like it's tense here. Maybe try fixing this or square this up a little better, what what have you. So, um, thankfully, uh, even though the weather was crappy for the first half of day one, uh, by the second half, uh, no longer, we sprink, it got sprinkled a little bit, but it, it remained dry so that we could uh, be able to shoot in the afternoon just again at 100 yards we ran through um, again zero we did our consistency check drill natural point of aim drill no bag drill and then we finished off with the 21 dot drill so um, a lot of cool rifles that we saw we saw uh, you know with some again some LE builds some 16 and a half inch uh, builds those guys are from uh, a small town in Oklahoma and they work as a joint agency. So um, based off their employment, they're doing a lot of uh, stadium stuff, uh, which is cool uh, because those, I mean, a 16 and a half inch 308 in the mountains, that is, and we'll talk about that, but that is is pushing it, but they were shooting well all weekend and I was really surprised, but driving a 16 and a half inch bolt gun 308, uh, you know, it takes a lot of, um, a lot of patience within yourself to do it uh, especially if you start comparing your capability uh, with the person that's next to you which you know everyone has to admit when you're shooting in a class that you kind of stare at the target to your left and to your right just by habit just to again compare yourself I remember doing that even as far back as the Marine Corps you know shooting uh, known distance uh, the uh, uh, M4, M16 qual, just the basic Marine Corps qualification, and just looking at people to my left and right, how, how well they did. But anyways, other than going down that rabbit hole. Uh, and then we had uh, a couple hunting rifles and 6.5 Creedmoor, like hunting rifle, hunting slash uh, competition setups, like hybrids. Right, Greg had one. Uh, one of our students uh, who's also in the uh, subscription or modern day rifleman monthly very active in the network um, it was cool to see his setup because again he, he hunts with it but he also likes to go to the local competitions in the uh, sheridan area uh, under wpr so um, and then we had uh, a sick cross there which we'll talk about uh, in 308 and yeah, so one of the main things that we saw on day one, um, again, going back to rifle setup, is uh, understanding that a rifle setup is never an old subject, because as you know, the with with how fast the sport of long range shooting is growing, people coming in, you know, everyone is always trying to figure out, okay, well, what rifle do I need to build to get into this? Not only that, I think people overestimate or overlook just the simple fact of setting your rifle up, right? And again, I talk about this in class, I'm sure we talked about it on the podcast, like the very first three things that you do when you go to a vehicle that's not yours is you change the seats, the steering wheel, and the mirrors, right? And then connect your Bluetooth, whatever, um, to, the, uh, to the car. But seats, mirrors, steering wheel. Now, everyone can agree if you jump into a vehicle that you have to move really quickly, you know, uh, just like out of a parking lot or whatever, you're not gonna adjust those seats. You're, because you've been driving for, for a while, you're gonna accommodate for whatever kind of, you know, uh, positions everything's in because you're just moving it so far. And, and that's what a lot of shooters that have experience behind a bolt gun will do. Um, but we want to avoid doing that behind a bulk because that's how we develop bad habits and and you know finding uh, points of our shooting position that uh, cause a strain or uncomfort. So you know that's essentially what Kalen and I do if we need to jump on a gun to see if it's working or not, um, and we don't want to make mess mess with that suited settings and whatnot. Is you know we'll hop on it and we'll accommodate the best of our ability to. Um, you know shoot that rifle anyways um, so rifle setup 
obviously being the first thing. And again, what we touch on is length of pull first, making sure that when you adjust your length of pull, your optic is off completely because you don't want to give yourself bias of trying to look through the scope. And what we're looking for with length of pull is uh, comfort of our wrists uh, that we're able to get straight behind the rifle system, uh, perpendicular to the line of bore, that our elbows and shoulders are parallel with each other, right? And that we're able to manipulate the bolt uh, without the rifle being compromised in its, in its position. And what, what I mean by that is uh, what, we, what I've found uh, watching shooters behind a bolt gun is if the length of pull typically is too long, what you'll see is as they go to run the bolt, the rifle slightly dips because of the torque that they have to apply with their shoulder, uh, causing their elbow to lift up, causing the barrel to dip down. So it's like essentially domino effect. Um, so if you notice right now within yourself, so you guys are checking to see if you are thinking pulls too long, notice, I mean, even if the slightest movement of your barrel dipping because you're running your bolt, then I would, uh, it would be safe to say that your length pull is slightly a smidge uh, too long. I mean, if there's an aggressive dip, then your length pull is really too long, right? Um, so once you uh, have your length of pull established, that's when we uh, figure out where our eye relief is at, right? Uh, that's when you would, you know, adjust your eye relief. And, and thankfully, with what I'm seeing more, now, what we're seeing more now with uh, with courses is students showing up with. Uh, rail systems to where we can essentially all we have to do is move the scope back in the rails whereas like a traditional hunter would have his rails and rings already attached to the uh or his uh, rings attached directly to the action and they'd have to essentially slide the scope and then relevel and all that stuff which is a huge pain in the ass but um it's easy nowadays to just move that scope once it's mounted in the rings uh, you know back a spot uh, specifically on the rail. So we establish eye relief, right? And then once eye relief established and if you have the ability to adjust your cheek riser, then you would adjust your cheek riser, okay? And then uh, followed by bipod height placement. And and honestly, looking back, you know, and this is why it's important to always like hot wash or like talk with students as an instructor to see like, hey, how could we have made this more efficiently? Because I would say um, even as we started modern day cyber and doing our intro to precision rifle courses, day one hasn't really changed that much, but we've for sure changed day two, day three, and also day four for a lot of our students that have um, been through our classes know, know that, well, if they went in 2020, one of our classes, it's not the same as 2022 other than day one. But now looking back, I definitely would love to see a change in day one because of, again, the front load of classes in the morning, especially with a download of like basic fundamentals, body positioning, aiming process, all that stuff, to really harp on some of those things. Because even with that being such a small portion of the information, it's still a lot for someone to consume in one day and, and try to apply it 30, 30 minutes to an hour later when they're behind the rifle. So, uh, you know, I'm definitely gonna talk to Keelan uh, about going back to the drawing board and seeing how we can essentially just make one day one a little bit more efficient in terms of just the students learning process right because um, we love to teach and then immediately apply afterwards rather than soaking in um, with all that information that you guys just learned and then you know stacking one thing on top of another just so that you can remember absolutely nothing by the time you get behind a gun right oh I remember to press the trigger at the bottom of my breathing cycle um, anyways so uh, bipod height you know we we bust we bust the myth of uh, you know making sure that your bipod height is low to the ground as possible or the bust the myth that you don't need to have your bipods as low to the ground as possible right and you know so uh, bump them up uh, two or three notches and with it being 2022, I would hope that your rifle is no longer, unless again, it's a hunting rifle, is no longer on a sling stud mount, right? And I say this a lot. Typically, we see some horrendous bipods come through that limit 
again, a student's ability to learn because they get frustrated, they can't get their gun. And usually I bring a shit ton of bipods with me. I, I usually bring three bipods with me. I don't know why. Um, I just like to, to mix things up, but I usually bring one all, always as a backup. Um, but that backup also serves as uh, ability to put onto a student's rifle in the case that their bipod goes down or whatever the case might be. Um, but if you have a sling stud on your rifle, I cannot help you because all of my bipods are uh, Picatinny. And I know maybe I should bring a bipod that has a sling stud adjustment, right? But I definitely believe in modernizing your rifle to make sure that you have some kind of Arca or Picatinny uh, on the front end there. All right, that's just, again, my opinion. So if you're coming to an in-person class, I highly recommend you throw that on your rifle uh, just so that, again, ease of uh, universe. Uh, uh, it being universal so uh, once we got with a uh, rifle set up you know we and and going back to the uh, driving the car kind of analogy you know when you jump to a vehicle and you're in the parking lot right you adjust your seats but then as you start driving well because you because you know now you're no longer in the parking lot and you're driving in real world conditions you make slight little adjustments to your initial settings that's the same thing with a with a rifle right you make your initial settings and then you fine tune it from there based off of again your shooting style or how you prefer right because you know a couple things that we have to consider is that when we set our rifle up in the prone it might not be ideal for let's say our standing position or kneeling so finding a blend that accommodates all our positions depending on our shooting style right and again if, if if you are a hunter that doesn't plan on you know doesn't think they're gonna shoot from the standing kneeling or sitting I get it then just set your rifle prone that's fine uh, but you know for again competitive shooters they're gonna find themselves in those shooting positions as a law enforcement sniper military sniper you're gonna find yourself in those positions where you know you want to make sure that you have a happy medium that accommodates all those shooting positions uh, but again, we typically set up while we're in the, uh, the prone. That's our, that's our initial setup. So, um, so one of the things that we found on day one, uh, was, uh, again, uh, it's making sure that you, you're selecting the correct ammo and, um, uh, the student that came with the SIG cross. And if you're unfamiliar with SIG Cross, it's a newer rifle that SIG just came out with, I'd say the last couple of years. And again, unbeknownst to the student, because he's very new, I, you know, when he came through class, actually the class was gifted to him by his relatives because uh, he wants to become a more proficient hunter, which is awesome. Um, but uh, he got a SIG Cross, a 308. I think it was like a, again, 16 and a half inch barrel. He had a, he had a can on it and uh, Vortex with the MOA scope. I want to say it was a Viper Gen, Gen 1. Well, as we're, you know, having them zero, uh, you know, I can sense, because uh, he's on the far right side of the line, that he's just not really happy with where zero's at. Um, again, at, at this point, I'm trying not to look at paper as the instructor. I'm strictly focusing at 100 yards uh, is by looking at the shooter, what the shooter's doing, what kind of habits that they've built, if they've already been shooting for a while or whatever, and making fine-tuned adjustments to advanced level shooters. And then again, just reminding the basic level shooters, hey, you know, this is where your rifle or shoulder connection should feel like. This is how you should, you know, uh, try your grip, try your trigger finger, uh, make sure you're not slapping the trigger, all these things, right? So that's what I tend to focus on when we're at the 100 as the instructor what I'm looking for. I don't care what your paper looks like. I care about what you're doing behind the gun. Um, and then finally, you know, when, when I feel like, uh, he, you know, that shooter's done slapping the trigger or not taking their face off the gun, then I'll jump on glass. And when I jumped on glass, um, I realized that uh, the student's rifle wasn't grouping well. And I was like, dang, because as we rolled into the consistency check drill, when he was shooting in the consistency check drill all it is like it's pretty much like 15 building breaks which uh, on one inch circles so you take one shot at a circle you break your position get back down and take another shot at a circle so you do that 15 times and um, i noticed that he was trying to dial his 
his turrets after every shot. So that was like, okay, this guy's still not zeroed yet. So um, I have I wa I, I uh, watch downrange as he shoots a group, and this thing goes like probably a, a like a good four minute minute of angle. Like he groups two together that are like high and right, two minutes of his uh, his uh, intended point of aim, and then his next two shots are literally on top of where he's trying to aim for. And then I was like, all right, just shoot one more. And this one like goes three minutes away from his intended point. And I'm like, what is going on? And so, you know, very first thing obviously that we do is we, I, I reach it, grab a scope, make sure his scope's not loose. You know, his action screws, right? His suppressor, I grab a suppressor, make sure his suppressor's not loose. And then I, you know, and I ask him, hey, what kind of ammo are you shooting? And uh, he said, oh, I, you know, I, I bought a bunch of this uh, PMC 142s. And I was like, oh, no. Um, so, you know, and you typically see this ammo at the local gun store, right? Um, again, it's in 762 by 51 or 308, whatever the case might be. But uh, again, this is all just assumption here. Phil Vallejo assumption, right? With the Sig Cross being new. Sig Cross is a one in 10 twist. I'm assuming that they are building that configuration around a lot of modern long range projectiles that are out on the market, which is like the 168 and the 175 grain Sierra Mash Kings. Well, the 168, 175 Sierra Mash Kings do fine in a one in 10 twist barrel. However, the lighter bullets do not. So case in point, um, I, I highly recommend when you when you buy ammo, um, I, when you buy ammo, it's always safe to to play it with uh, again federal gold metal match for 308s, again a 168 grain or a 175 grain Sierra Match King. Uh, the 168 uh, uh, boat tail hollow points are fine too. We'll go into that. Um, uh, 178 grain uh, Hornady 308s uh, for 6.5 Creedmoor, you know, uh, the uh, 140 grain ELDMs, 147 ELDMs, uh, the uh, Federals, uh, 6.5 Creedmoor, and, um, you know, I would say the gold standard for 6.5 Creedmoor is Hornady's uh, factory ammo, though. You know, and those are those are typically the two most common cartridges that we see come through our in-person class. And, and and honestly, those are usually great cartridges for shooters that are just getting into this to learn long-range shooting. Now, uh, what we just guesstimated was that because the student was shooting 142 grain, that bullet wasn't stabilizing within that 100 yards. That's why it's going to go to the place. So thankfully, he had a lot of 185 burgers with him that were again burger factory bullets but he only had 20. so i had him shoot out of that and i mean he was able to sack three rounds within an inch i was like okay it definitely is not the rifle we're having ammunition issues however majority of his ammo that he brought for course which was the course is about 400 rounds he had that pmc ammo so um because I wanted to make sure that he could uh, rebuild confidence in his um, abilities, I had him shoot uh, Ryan's gun, which is a 6.5 Creedmoor custom built from uh, Spartan Precision. I mean, these things shoot lights out, shoots really well. Um, and uh, so I had him shoot Ryan's gun. And I mean, he was able to stack three rounds on top of each other. And what that does, it just allows the shooter to realize, okay, like, it's not my fundamentals are, that are fucked up. Like I'm, I'm, you know, shooting with, you know, inferior equipment. And, and this is why it's definitely important to try to find a balance of, you know, well, do you really need a custom bolt gun to get into this? Absolutely not, right? But it definitely takes a lot of the question out in terms of like, is it the rifle or is it me that's, not able to shoot at 100 yards because we see that a lot with students that bring rifles in 
from gun manufacturers that we've seen have issues with consistently and you know they're just chasing it the whole time thinking that it's them but it's really the capability of their rifle system and you know again that hinders the, the students uh, you know just think about it if you went to a class and your gear's not working for you what are you thinking about you're you're pissed that you're either pissed or you're just wondering like well crap and you're 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 completely out of focus and, and stuff like that so um definitely uh try to uh, reach out to us or uh, again on the network if you guys are not a part of the modern day rifleman network i was just going over there the last few days and i mean it is um it is growing it's super cool to see everyone's interaction a lot of great information i appreciate you guys not being d-bags to each other right um and anyways uh if you're coming to class and you're not sure about your setup call us or email us uh, info at modern day sniper or um, hit the guys up or hit uh, post a question up on the modern day rifleman network and someone will get to you based off of again their experience with that maybe they've been to an in-person class have seen that rifle specifically or what have you so uh, thankfully uh, uh, the student was able to go out in town find some 168 Hornady bullets and you know he only bought uh, 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 like three or four boxes of it because I uh, I figured I was like alright well I've got plenty of 6.5 Creedmoor here at my house and I've got an extra gun so worst case he'll shoot my gun but thankfully he was able to find some bullets um, uh, to be able to shoot his gun on day two a little bit but uh that uh, he definitely ran out of ammo so i by the la on the last two days i ended up giving him my 6.5 creedmoor my tika and i mean he shot really really well uh and enjoyed shooting behind it so uh that student's rifle ended up shooting my rifle and everything all worked out so uh, moving into day two we uh, talked internal or external ballistics Right. Uh, this is where day two, uh, we you know dive into a, a basic level understanding of external ballistics. Um, one of my things that I'm working on better as an instructor is being able to uh, better articulate external ballistics uh, down to a basic level without using $10 words, as uh, Ryan calls it. Um, I think Kalen does a really great job at that where I kind of struggle because a lot of my, again, I understand the basic, uh, you know, I understand external ballistics to its entirety, but I feel like my level of ability to teach it to somebody is not that of like me teaching somebody the fundamentals of marksmanship. Like I can teach you how to drive a gun, but it's hard for me to break into simplistic terms what the bullet's actually doing in flight and why you know, uh, certain things are happening uh, without regurgitating what I have read from, let's say, like a Brian Litz publication or book or what what have you. So um, anyways, because, uh, you know, when Kalen and I do classes together, he's usually doing the one the the uh, all the technical stuff where I do all the the art calling wind and, and whatnot. So. So external ballistics, we uh, talk about everything that goes into long range shooting, right? Gravity, atmospheric conditions, uh, your bullet coefficiency, muzzle velocity, how we get all that stuff, how it affects your trajectory. Uh, we program the uh, solver, which again, we use the Hornady four degree of freedom solver. We're big fans of it. Uh, just because again, the user interface and just keep everything simple as we're teaching the uh, atmospherics class of what really matters, right? Um, and then uh, we head out to Hard Mountain day one and it was interesting as I was demonstrating uh, the uh, trajectory validation portion where you adjust your axial form factor on the Hornady 4 degree of freedom app. I mean it was blowing easily well, when we got to the top of the hill it was easily blowing 35 miles an hour and the only wind call that I had a hold for a 990 yard target which was like a coyote that's about 0.3 mils tall and about a mil wide um was like 0.5 i opened up with a with my gun number 
um, and realized that there was too much. And then I cut that in half and was able to nail it uh, uh, three times in a row. Now, one thing that I've been guilty of, guys, is not shooting enough samples with my axial form factor. You know, so one thing that I've been doing a lot lately is being conscious of making sure that I'm grouping on target and at least five, six rounds, uh, making sure that I'm not just taking one shot, being stingy on ammo and being like, okay, I hit it with that first shot, I'm good, right? So making a concerted effort to shoot more than three rounds to group on target, right, is super important, you know? Um, even with my reloading process that, you know, leading up to this, this match, um, I probably shot over 100, 100, 100 tips on paper uh, just to make sure that, again, I was getting larger data samples than what, I was, what I've been traditionally doing. And honestly, uh, seeing it for myself has helped me um, immensely uh, gain confidence in my load that I'm going to be using. Uh, but not only that, just now I feel like because I've now done this homework, I don't have to do it anymore. And it's it's it was worth again the hundred rounds that I put on paper. Um, just because again, going back to the large data sample. So um, yeah, so going back to trajectory validation, make sure you shoot at least six, at least three rounds. But if you can do six, obviously the more the merrier. Um, and then. Uh, you know, showed them my uh, axial form factor. I was running 147 grand ELDMs out of my uh, 6.5 Creedmoor. And then, you know, I had the students shoot it. And that's when, you know, they, they're able to shoot at the, at the venue. And this is, I mean, pretty cool to see them uh, open up and just start hitting steel, right? In, in country that, uh, again, the Heart Mountain is a world-class venue. I've shot all over the nation. I shouldn't say all over the world. I've only shot in a couple different countries while I was in the Marine Corps. Um, but I would say with all the places that I've shot at, Heart Mountain uh, is my number one. Um, it's on my bucket list to go to Hat Creek. I hear Brian has an amazing facility out there. It's just our schedules never line up for me to be able to go out there, for Kaylin and I to go out there. So. Um, it'll definitely be hopefully within the next couple years or so, but, um, so day two is relatively simple. Uh, you know, we just validate our trajectory. Once we validate, I just get the students comfortable with their solvers hitting targets. Right. And, you know, I was having an interesting conversation with Ryan about this, um, cause he knows a lot of instructors that are on the East coast, a lot of schools and stuff like that, where, you know, I, I kind of keep up with more of. I would say relevant instructors um, and you know he talks about there are instructors out there nowadays that that still teach getting dope with a data book and I'm gonna be completely honest with you guys I haven't used a data book I haven't used a data book since I've since I was teaching at sniper school which was now five years ago four years ago, I, let, I got out in 2018, but I really stopped teaching in like 17. Uh, so like five years ago, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the shot and plot method is, is just outdated. And uh, I, I did teach about it. I did teach that in the in, uh, external ballistics class of how we used to gather data. Um, you know, how I used to gather data, which was using a data book. But now, you know, with the accuracy of the solvers, I mean, it, it really takes that step out so that you can be confident that your gun's going to be shooting what your your solver says, assuming all your equipment's working and functioning correctly, right? Um, to where you don't have to write down. But again, there's no harm, no foul in in uh, writing a data book down, right? Uh, especially if you want to get true data. And, and, and honestly, nothing beats hard data, right? But again, I've had plenty. I've had a lot of luck with the Hornady Ford off, even the applied ballistics. Uh, you know, uh, there's a lot of great ballistic solvers out there that are super accurate. Uh, ballistic Arc or Geoballistics is what it's known known as. Uh, Strelock Shooter, all this stuff. So again, you know, we teach around uh, using the tool, the modern tools to help the rifleman so that we can focus more on the shooting part 
rather than the, uh, the scientific technical part. But moving into day three, day three, we teach uh, wind and oh, actually, so day one, or sorry, blah, blah, day two, um, one of the things that uh, students kind of um, struggled with is I put together our uh, modern day sniper basic evaluation, known distance basic evaluation, and it, pretty much what it is, it's five targets that are um, scattered in a troop line for, uh, uh, formation. And what a troop line is, is in essentially targets that go from near to far. Um, so it's five targets from near to far, and, and we we do this for every for every intro class, um, and because we have it kind of now standardized where the targets are anywhere from uh, 200 yards to 700 yards with a 6.5 or 6 and, it, and then within 600 yards if you're running a 308 and the targets are anywhere from 2 to no bigger than 3M away uh, large and the student has to engage from near to far all five targets of known distance with a specific scoring system that we have and um, again uh, I always demonstrate to uh, show them a that I'm capable of doing it, b that I'm not asking them to do something that I wouldn't that I'm not capable of doing myself, uh, and three and, and hopefully instill um, uh, you know uh, again just you know watching your instructor being able to perform what you're being asked to do usually helps like hey I can you know. Okay, if he can do it, then I should be able to, you know, do it too. So I, I demonstrate it, and then I watch all the students go through it. And uh, one of the most underrated things that a rifleman uh, does, a precision rifleman uh, does not do enough, is equipment management, specifically understanding um, how to manipulate their bipods based off of the terrain. And what I mean by that is based off of the way that we were shooting, we were shooting down at an angle uh, on top of this hill and the targets were down, the first couple targets were down in pretty much the draw. And as the rest of the targets worked up, like targets three, four, five, um, it started to almost level out with the same plane as the ridge that we were shooting off. So obviously they were shooting, they were going starting low and then having to shoot up. Well, if you understand your your bipod science at that point you realize that okay for the first couple targets you'll need a lot of bipod but then as you depending on what part of the, the micro terrain you're at as you start to look up the hill you realize oh i don't have enough bipod or i'm on a reverse slope a i need to back up or i need to reposition my bipods further back or whatever the case might be uh, to be able to get a better um uh, angle to the target without compromising my rifle to shoulder connection uh, and you know just ditching my bag or using my hand whatever the case might be and so a lot of students timed out um, with that specific exercise or they just got frustrated because they couldn't build a uh, um, um, solid shooting position and this is where in the mountains there's no such thing as the perfect prone you know you're usually got some kind of rock digging into your rib cage and your you know bipods are downhill and um, and these are where, especially in the mountains, what I found, these are where tall bipods really shine uh, or having the ability to have taller bipods because sometimes you find yourself in a reverse slope and you have to, um, again, shoot up at a higher angle and that requires more bipods, right? So uh, students that had extensions on their bipod legs or, uh, you know, nine to 13 inch atlases or even sky pods, right benefited uh, with those bipods because of again the the terrain that I, I put them in uh, so can't stress that enough guys is understanding how to manipulate your bipods uh, under time under stress right um, without you know having to overcomplicate your shooting position right or breaking your shooting position just to adjust your bipod so we went over a couple of, uh, techniques that I like to do when I need to adjust my bipods on the fly um, and have them work on that. So that's day day two stuff. Day three, we talk about wind, and um, you know I give my wind spiel, right? And thankfully there, right, we had a lot of wind to to uh, challenge the students, 
and uh, one of the things that I did was uh, force uh, them to force a few of the students. Uh, I try to force all of them, but uh, force them to get on glass. Now, I cannot stress enough if you're going to an in-person class to have uh, a, a binos or a spotting scope or some kind of glass or even if you don't have that to while another student is shooting to spot for them uh, and so that you can look at the conditions as they're shooting to uh, help you with wind, right? Because think about it, when, when you are taking an intro class, you already have all these things that you have to remember based off of what the instructor, what, how the curriculum flows, right? How to drive the gun, making sure that you're correcting the, the or applying the right dope, making sure that your parallax is good. You're, you're, you're having to think about all these things. And then when we get into wind, now I'm telling, teaching you to make a wind call. Whereas if you are just spotting for a shooter, all you're thinking about is wind. And hopefully obviously watching the trace, but you're not driving the gun. You're not thinking about anything other than, well, what kind of, what wind call would I hold in this situation? And then watching the shooter and then asking them, okay, hey, go ahead and shoot. Boom, they shoot. And then asking them, oh, what'd you hold? So you can visualize, okay, they held 0.5. Clearly it wasn't enough. They needed more like a 0.8 or 0.9, especially if you have a reticle inside your, um, in your spotter, or you can kind of just guesstimate uh, based off the target size. And then you can stop and think like, okay, well, he used 0.5. Clearly it wasn't enough. This is why it wasn't enough because of the way that the mirage is super flat or the trees in the background are blowing a lot harder or more aggressively. And then now you put that in your memory bank. And, and honestly, because I'm on glass so much, you know, uh, it's made me a better wind caller right, because of that, uh, because I'm only able to really just focus on wind, especially when I'm with a student um, and stuff like that. So. Uh, I, I cannot stress enough, guys, if you're going to an in-person class um, to bring, you know, a tripod with glass so that, you know, when you're not shooting and you guys partner up, you know, whether you're going with a buddy or not, you can sit on glass. So, you know, a couple of things that I was doing with the students was um, as other shooters, I'd have them uh, uh, stand right next to me or, you know, within uh, obviously a, a talking distance. And I'd ask him, OK, what do you see? Right, because I'm learning again the mountains. It's my first time up at Heart Mountain since last year, since last fall. Uh, so you know I'm trying to recalibrate myself to the winds at the range. Because what's nice about Heart Mountain is that uh, you, you get different winds uh, in the morning and the afternoon, and sometimes within a 30-minute window. Right, so I was able to ask the students, um, and this is where. Uh, the way that one of the, the way that Pete Kanai set up targets up at Heart Mountain is he's got a string of targets around 600 yards um, and they're all different, a part of different courses of fire. But for a course, I can use them all in, in one string sitting. Well, they're probably spread out about 100 to 120 degrees and they're all about anywhere from 600 to 680. Right, So roughly around the same wind call. And we were able to really understand value when the wind was coming down the canyon, canyon from left to right. So as we were shooting further to the right, uh, we had uh, more of a quarter value, half value. And then as we started shooting more toward the left into the wind, we saw more of a full value wind call, right? Cause you know, as we were shooting again, the same exact distance distances, like I think the first target target one on the far right side of this set was uh, like 600 and he was, uh, shooters started off with like a 0.2 or 0.3, but then as they started to swing further left into the wind, more of an aggressive, uh, again, 90 uh, based off the wind vector, uh, you saw them having to hold one and a half uh, gun number, uh, which is equivalent to about 0.9 to uh, 1.1 um, uh, mils. Right. And that means, you know, uh, especially up there at 6,500, a lot of gun numbers uh, were roughly around uh, eight or even sometimes nine uh, with the sixes and six fives. And the 308s were roughly about a six. Like my gun, 
was unfortunately my uh, 147 ELDMs was unfortunately a nine mile an hour gun because we're up at 6,500, right? So again, if you're unfamiliar with gun number, um, gun number is just a, a really quick way to figure out or have a, a wind in your head uh, based off the mile per hour. Uh, but your gun number is influenced by three things, most velocity, the BC, ballistic coefficient of your bullet, as well as your density altitude or your altitude. I'll just say density altitude, your altitude. So my 6.5 Creedmoor at sea level is typically a six mile an hour and a big Cody at 5,000 feet becomes an eight mile an hour. And then at Art Mountain at 6,500 feet becomes a nine mile an hour gun. So uh, we've got a bunch of classes in the network about that. And there's also um, a wind podcast that Kaylin and I have done uh, somewhere down below uh, in the previous episode. So check that out if you are new to the uh, podcast. So, uh, but yeah, day three was really interesting. Day three, again, I learned that. And the last thing that I'd say about day three was um, I, I was really able to uh, not, I shouldn't say believe aerodynamic jump. Uh, I'm not saying that it has not, not existed. But I know that uh, certain, there are calculators out there that almost overcook it to a, to a degree. But uh, on day three, thankfully, toward the later half of uh, the day, the second half, we were shooting in easily 20, 15 plus, sometimes 20 plus mile an hour crosswinds, like full, full value crosswinds, where students were holding, again, uh, two to two and a half times their gun number. Again, if their gun number is eight, two and a half times that means that they were holding anywhere from 16 mile an hour to 20 miles an hour at 600 yards. So what we were seeing is that uh, a lot of students were impacting low because they had to hold from left, we had a wind coming from left to right. So again, if you're familiar with aerodynamic jump, as that projectile is spinning, it doesn't get pushed by the wind. It actually noses into the wind, the direction of the wind. And because of a right spin, you're going to see, Assuming that your barrel's a right-handed barrel, you're going to see that uh, projectile essentially uh, nose down or nose up, uh, depending on the wind deflection, whether it's coming left to right, right to left. So if it's left to right, it's going to get pushed down. So it requires you to dial up more elevation um, when you are having aerodynamic jump into your projectile. And so um, we were seeing that consistently, and and. It was, a, it was easily about two to three tenths uh, uh, per student, right? Because two tenths is going to throw, two to three tenths is going to throw you off target. Um, so on day four, bef- in, in day four of our intro is our uh, modern day sniper evaluation. That's pretty much like the bulk of half of day one, which is five events. And because we were limited on our zero range, I didn't have them do event two, which is our 21 dot drill. So I subbed it with something else, which we'll talk about, which is actually a really cool course fire that I put up. So uh, uh, on the very first day, what we did, was, or the very first event is, is a rifle zero. So we have I have them take their optics off and they put them back on and they have to show us that they can establish, re-zero their rifle within 15 rounds, within one minute of angle, right? And so before I did that, because I knew students were questioning why they were low the day before, I just had them make sure, okay, hey, before you take your scopes off, I want you to shoot a five round zero confirmation to see if you're low or that was really aerodynamic jump that was playing a factor why you were hitting low uh, yesterday evening. So they shot and all of them were dead nuts right no no one had any issues with their zero so that really confirmed that hey we were all seeing aerodynamic jump which again is super super cool to see uh, especially if you've been through my triangle of truth class um, and my specific thoughts thoughts on aerodynamic jump anyways uh, so they take their scopes off they put them back on and a that shows us they know how to zero their rifle system b it also builds confidence in their rifle system depending on the type of rings that they use Right. In the case they need to take their optic off and put it back on, they can have confidence that their zero either returns back to zero or they only have like a point one shift, um, you know, consistently, whatever the case is. Right. So 
Um, all good there, no issues. So we do the uh, 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 re-zero, and then event two is the known distance eval. Um, and then event three is the uh, unknown distance eval. Okay, so this is what I forgot to talk about with uh, day three. Day three, we introduced them to the unknown distance eval. And um, if you follow me on social media, you've you know seen me the last couple of days or last week been posting about range finders and how again range finders are probably also un underutilized as a rifleman. You know, um, we take it for granted when we go to a range our local range and we already know the distance to the targets because again it's our local range our home range right um but the amount of uh how much a shooter can get thrown off with their shooter's checklist by giving them a range finder is absolutely uh it's terrifying and so uh evaluation three is uh the modern day sniper unknown distance evaluation where we put five targets at unknown distances and we give it we give it to them in a specific order so you know maybe the target first target's like 400 yards and the second target's like 300 yards and the third target's like 600 and then the four targets back to 300 so that that way they don't have the you know uh, mindset of just stacking their wind from 200 to 300 although the known distance is from near to far the unknown distance is again in, in a uh, uh, different order and I typically love to traverse so you go from left side of the range to right side of the range uh, because it really forces you to pick up your body and move and have to good target acquisition especially in the mountains so um, they shoot uh, they I give them their unknown distance evaluation they get to use their laser rangefinder see if it works in the mountains we, we saw uh, some rangefinders based off of the specific um, glass quality it had um, depending on the time of the day uh, have a hard time essentially not picking up a range to the target but finding the target inside of the range finder because of again the, the specific type of day the type of lens filter or coating or whatever that the, the specific range finder had in it made it so that it made finding targets difficult depending on if we had overcast or not um, so that's another thing to, to consider and I know all these things are being found out too by competitive shooters that are shooting like the NRL hunter or whatnot right because that's when you really start to see your gear uh, really work or not in those specific environments um, so uh, one thing that I found with if you've been uh, lately I've been using the Terrapin X uh, Garmin combo and one thing I did find out is that the Terrapin only sends line of sight range to the to the Garmin. It does not send a, uh, a corrected range, right? So I had to manually correct all my ranges myself uh, based off of the angle because again we had probably about 20 degree angles on some of the closer targets, um, and then you know it, it flattened out to about like a 10 degree angle as we got further out. But the, the close ones, especially the ones that weren't really vertically forgiving, if you know, Pete had some animal shaped targets uh, under 400, you know, those 400 yard targets were easily a 20 to um, 15 to 20 degree angle. And if you don't have a corrected um, dope, you're gonna miss over the top. Um, so uh, that's one thing I did find about my equipment, which is again, also cool. And I was able to reach out to uh, those guys as a, as a uh, feedback point. So moving into event. So that was event uh, two, unknown, uh, two is unknown distance, or sorry, two is known distance, three is unknown distance, excuse me. Two is trajectory validation. So we did that, which is just showing us how you know how to program a ballistic solver, and then use that use that information, and shoot out the targets out to. Uh, we had targets out to 1350, which is a big elk uh, target. Um, event three is known distance eval. Event four is unknown dis distance eval, and then on the fifth one, I put together a small little again uh, fun course of fire. Um, 
and fun, it was funny thing is, is uh, for the event for the unknown distance, a lot of guys struggled with it uh, because we did pick up to high winds. And, um, you know, some guys were getting low scores. So I gave them the option of a mulligan and essentially they were able to reshoot it, but they would have to take that score that they shot and they also had to shoot the course in reverse order. So target one is now, or target five is now target one, target two is now target four, so on and so forth, right? So some of the guys took it, and I would say most of the guys that did take it got a worse score than the first one. There's only one person, I think, that benefited from the, their mulligan. Uh, so uh, so that's event four, that was event four. And again, event five is something I put together because typically the 21 dot drill is a part of it, but because of range limitations, we could not do the 21 dot drill for the basic eval. So I put together this kind of like a run and gun uh, uh, shoot. So um, I made six stations uh, that swung around the ridge. And if you've been up to Hard Mountain, the south course, it's pretty much stages one through six, right? One being at the top of the hill, shooting up toward the elk, and then six being down uh, toward the end of the, the main firing line uh before you drop down off into the second uh, little ridge there um but you start off on uh, stage six or uh, engineer stake six and you make your way to engineer stake one and at every engineer stake or every stage you would have one target so essentially six targets and um if you guys uh are on social media i think the only person that has their course of fire up on this is Ryan. This is a, the video I took of Ryan Diagostino. His Instagram is saving uh, Ryan's privates. And uh, you can see his, his run there. He did a phenomenal job. But essentially, I assigned each stake one target. And all they had to do, all the student had to do, was hit that target once. And so I gave them unlimited ammo, unlimited gear they were just on a time factor. So I gave them uh, 10 minutes to shoot six stages or six targets that was probably spread out in over 150, maybe 200 meters, 200 yards. Um, and the targets were, uh, the closest target I believe was 350 or 380 yards. And the furthest target was 1,350 yards, which was on stage six. So uh, if they hit the target, they got five points, which uh, uh, accounted toward their eval, which we use the eval for um, to, to, to designate high shooter at the end and give them a basic understanding of where they're at as riflemen, right? It's like a performance test um, to see what they, they can work on. And so uh, I ran it first again, and, and I run all of these events you know, as instructors, Caitlin and I run all of these events with students to set the bar. Because if it's howling like 15, 20 miles an hour, I'm not expecting a student to clean a known distance or unknown distance course fire if I go up there and the best that I can do is like a 16 out of 20 points, right? Based off of our grading system. So that's 16 because of the new bell curve. Has there been students that uh, outshot the instructor on that specific eval? Absolutely. Um, but it's been very rare that a student has that outshot the instructor for all five evaluations uh, as a as a as a as a score pole, right? But we do that to set the curve because um, we feel as instructors that again, you know, um, it allows us to sustain um, our skill set and stuff like that under under pressure. Uh, but I shot the, every course of fire right in front of them for, to, for demonstration and to help them with their initial wind calls for whoever was going up up next. So uh, that's pretty cool. But uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that last, uh, 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 you know, I, I'm gonna figure out a name, but I might standardize that for Heart Mountain courses, even if you're doing a positional class or maybe even the uh, wind clinic, I'm probably gonna have that at the very end of the class. Uh, but that was probably for everybody their favorite like it was just a great culminating event because it put everything together. Some guys, you know, even though they got to state only uh, uh, target three because they had a hard time, you know, with their re-engagements or whatever, they just had a blast being able to, you know, 
move into position, find the target, lays it, and you know try to open up to the best of their ability, their wind call, and correct back to it, right? Um, and yeah, I think it was uh, just a, a good, good class and event uh, overall. But uh, and that pretty much wraps up uh, the intro class. You know, we had really great weather. Uh, you know, day one was thankfully not as bad as what the weather predicted even though all day one was classroom. Like I said, I, I think there's a better way that we can do day one. So, you know, if, if you guys have been to our day one courses or our intro courses, let us know in the network, like, hey, how, how do you feel like day one could go in regards to uh, the fundamentals and the rifle setup? You know, whether it's all done at the range and then do it like kind of like by the numbers of like, hey, we're gonna teach rifle setup class first and then we're immediately gonna just set up our rifles rather than do all of the bolt classes up front and then go to the range so uh feedback uh like that would be nice but um yeah other than that i'm heading to about 20 minutes away from uh boise uh again i've got a precision rifle i'm shooting six creed uh 110 eight tips with the krgc4 uh, i'm pushing them right about 3,000 feet per second uh, H4350 and I did a little bit uh, things differently for this uh, load development process and I'm excited I make sure to sh share with you guys the findings that I found um, but um, like I said I, I think this year for me is like the year of experimentation because I've been struggling a lot with uh, I've been battling a lot with gear and equipment the first few months um, you know and uh, I feel like that's kind of uh, why my mental performance has been suffering with uh, regards to just competitive shooting um, in terms of like pl placement and stuff like that. But I feel really good about going into this match uh, it's, as far as my equipment um, and, you know, my mental, mental headspace. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited to share with you guys again. Maybe in the next uh, podcast, I'll talk to Kalen about um, how his bear hunt was and, and, and share with you guys kind of my load development process, what I found, what I did. Uh, with my powder and whatnot uh, in preparation for not only this match, but uh, the uh, K&M match, which I'm shooting the week after this, weekend after this, and then after this match here in Idaho, I'm going up to Montana uh, with Kalen and Owen and um, one of our other sniper uh, colleagues who's just recently got out of the Marine Corps, um, Rob. Uh, we're gonna be doing a month Montana State Tactical Association Academy and uh, teach the uh, LE snipers there for four days. Um, so, man, I'll tell you what, I'll leave it off with this. Loading 550 rounds in one day sucks. And and the only thing that I did the day before, and again, I'll, I'll tell you this whole nightmare story in the non-podcast, but the only thing that I did, was able to do the night before was uh size all the brass and then i literally um cleaned it overnight and then woke up the next morning i had to trim 550 pieces 542 to be exact 542 pieces prime 542 pieces and then drop powder and seat 542 bullets uh and i have two fx 120i's with auto tricklers and it still took me all day. So, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll save that for the next podcast. Anyways, hopefully you guys enjoyed me rambling on as I finish this drive to Boise. Um, hopefully I didn't go too down too many rabbit holes. I think this is probably the, my second podcast that I've done by myself. My first one being at the very beginning of our podcast series, but I definitely think I need to start doing these a lot more, especially with Kaylin and I. Always schedules out of you know uh, conflicting and and stuff like that. And um, I'd love to again uh, just already, um, especially with being on road trips, you think about a lot of stuff. So um, uh, definitely do this more for you guys. You know, even if it's 15, 20, 30 minutes. Uh, but it looks like I made uh, made about a whole hour and five minutes and some change for you guys. So again. If you guys are listening, thanks for being listeners to the podcast. I appreciate everyone's support. Um, for everyone that came out to our in-person class, uh, I appreciate, we appreciate you guys and your business. Um, uh, we don't take it lightly your, of your time uh, because we know how much effort and time and money it takes to come out and train with us 
Uh, and remember, guys, we train right alongside with you guys. You know, um, you know, I'm, we're learning just as much as you are with uh, with the instruction. And uh, yeah, um, I look forward to meeting a lot of you guys more throughout the summer. Um, we've got a bunch of uh, we I should say a bunch of classes, but we have uh, a few more classes this summer in Cody. I don't think there's any more intro classes, but there is a wind clinic and a positional field positional clinic at Heart Mountain uh, in um, June and July. So check that out if you're in the nearby area. We're 45 minutes from Yellowstone. And uh, those are just, again, world-class venue that you don't want to miss. Um, and you can take your family on vacation afterwards. So uh, that's all I got, guys. Appreciate you guys. And we'll see you guys in the next po podcast. You guys know the drill. Keep your face on the gun.